Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. So here we are in Daniel chapter 9. This is the passage uh, that really... Uh, yeah, I'll say that. This is the passage that the premillennial view really takes from in order to establish their idea of a seven-year tribulation. A lot of times, Daniel is read just in light of that. We hear about the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. We want to know about the 70 weeks. What does it mean? Which, what is the description of the last week? which is so often described as the seven-year tribulation and all of that. And so Daniel 9 is, is generally read in light of that. But Daniel 9 is not just to be read concerning a prophecy, whether or not it's future or whatever. There's a context here that this passage of Scripture is not just a riddle that is given to Daniel that... Subsequent generations that follow are to somehow try to decipher and try to come up with what this is and what this is and who this is or whatever. It is given in light of a prayer that Daniel prayed. As Daniel prayed the prayer that he did last week as he's confessing the sins of his people, the people Israel, as he is acknowledging you know, that they done wrong in the sight of God, that they had committed iniquity. They did not listen to His commandments and His ordinances. They didn't listen to His servants, the prophets, who spoke in their names. None of that. They didn't do any of that. He's confessing all of that before the Lord, and then He's petitioning the Lord. Lord, hear our prayer. Act on our behalf in accordance with all Your righteousness. Let Your anger and Your wrath turn away from Your city, Jerusalem, Your holy mountain. He says, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. Verse 17, so now our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now here's the, this is a prayer. <clears throat> this is Daniel. Reading Jeremiah, understanding that Jeremiah's prophecy about the 70 years of captivity is getting ready to come to an end. And so Daniel then begins to seek the Lord. And this is a unique prayer, as we talked about last week. This is a prayer that Daniel makes unto the Lord with fasting and with sackcloth and ashes. This is not how he usually prayed. This is a special prayer. It's a unique prayer. It is one that he is just bearing all before the Lord and asking the Lord to act on their behalf. And what we're getting ready to read from verses 20 on is not just some abstract thing that has nothing to do with that generation or any of the other generations, but only with the generation in the last days is nonsense. What we're getting ready to get into in these verses has everything to do with this people, has everything to do with anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, 
because Daniel's last part of the prayer was, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. Well, how's the Lord going to do that? Well, He's getting ready to tell us. How is the Lord going to bring all of this about? In light of the sin of your people, in light of their rejection of you, in light of their falling away, Lord, forgive. This is how it's going to be done. So we're reading an answer to a prayer. This is not a time to look at this and, and try to, to again establish a, a premillennial idea of a tribulation or any of that. None of that's contained in the text whatsoever. This is an answer to a prayer to make an end of sin, to make atonement, to bring in everlasting righteousness. How is the Lord going to forgive His people? He's going to tell us. And interestingly, this is so amazing, because Daniel was prophesying the late 500s, or mid-500s, I should say. And this is being revealed to him of how the Lord is going to do all of this almost 500 years before it ever occurs. He is telling Daniel so that the people would know how the Lord is going to bring some of these things about. We have to remember that Isaiah has already prophesied. He prophesied maybe 150 years close to that uh, before Daniel, he's, he's done gone, but it was Isaiah who prophesied of uh, the great chapter of Isaiah 53 of the suffering of Christ and all that the Messiah would endure. And Daniel is taking up that theme as well. This is an answer to Daniel's prayer that goes right into the heart of that very subject. And it has everything to do with the people of God then. It has everything to do with the people of God now. How is it that God can forgive? Well, He can't just wink at your sin and say, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bestow any justice upon you, though you're deserving. I'm just going to let you on in. That's not being a just God. That's not being righteous. How can God be just and justify sinners? only through what He tells us here of the work of the Messiah. that has to do with them and you. This chapter, these passages of Scripture, has everything to do with you as the people of God, just as it did with them. The way that God deals with the sins of His people then is vital for us to understand. Because what God does here has an effect on all who desire to come to the Lord. So let's look at this with fresh eyes. With a fresh understanding. In context of what we had read previously of last week. So if you would please stand with me. <clears throat> as we give honor to God's word. Let us rejoice in the fact that that we have the Scriptures before us, that we can learn and grow in our understanding of the living God by looking to His Word. Verse 20, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me, came to me in my extreme weariness, 
about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with Daniel. I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times in distress. Even in times of distress. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we again thank You for Your Word. And thank You for all that it reveals to us about You. Thank You for this portion of Your Word, which gives us such strength and encouragement and understanding concerning the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and what it is that He did. What did He accomplish? How amazing it is, Father, that these things were written so many centuries before Christ, but came to pass just as You had said. For this is truly an indication, Father, that You control all history and You are sovereign over the affairs of men. You bring all things into account all things according to Your will. You do all things well. Father, encourage our hearts and let our eyes be focused upon our Lord Jesus and all that He accomplished for us. Be glorified in our thoughts. Let our hearts be open and, and ready to act according to whatever You would have us to do. Thank You, Father. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's children say, Easy so again, context. Daniel is praying. Daniel understands that they are there in Babylon on account of their sin. They rejected the Lord, rejected His commandments. And on account of all of those things, these curses that were written in the Law of Moses that we read last week in Deuteronomy chapter 28 had come upon them. This was 900 years earlier that it was told through Moses in, in the time in which the people of God would forsake him, these curses would come upon him, and that is exactly what has happened. So Daniel in reading Jeremiah, Jeremiah was also in the time of the exile. He wrote to those who, who were exiled to encourage them, to tell them what the Lord would have them to do and all of those things. And he also prophesied that they would be there 70 years. They would be in captivity for 70 years. Babylon would be ruling the nations for 70 years. They themselves would be in captivity for 70 years. 
he reads Jeremiah <clears throat> as we read <clears throat> in the uh, early verses here. Chapter, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, seventy years. He knows these things are getting close. He knows it's getting ready to be time. So in light of that, he prays on behalf of the people of God, confessing their sins. And we went through that prayer last week of what adoration that Daniel gives unto the Lord before he even begins into his supplications, how Daniel regards the Lord, how he confesses the sins of his people before the Lord, and then he gets to the point where he is then asking the Lord to act on their behalf. <clears throat> so in light of that prayer, in light of that prayer, we read, while he was still speaking, Gabriel appears to him. He's speaking, it's still on his lips, confessing the sin of his people, presenting his supplication before the Lord, before the, the sanctuary of the Lord. And Gabriel, whom he had previously seen, comes to him in his extreme weary, weariness at the time of the evening sacrifice, the evening offering. And then he begins to instruct him. Gabriel is one, of course, that we are very familiar with. It's Gabriel who's going to appear to Mary. It's Gabriel who appears to Zechariah. And he's a messenger of the Lord. He's the one who stands in the presence of the Lord. And at the time in which Daniel begins praying, he is commissioned by the Lord to go to Daniel to give him understanding. That is exactly what he says. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. This is not a riddle. This is not something that is that is just given to Daniel, that Daniel's going to sit back and scratch his head and wonder, I wonder what all this means. It is given to him for the purpose that he would understand it. And if he was given that opportunity and that, that blessing of the Lord to understand it, then it should not be made something that it, that it was never intended by us on this side of the cross and these generations uh, to make it something completely opposite. Understand something, this idea of this premillennial view of this seven-year tribulation thing was not brought about until close to the turn of the, of the 1900s, the turn of the 20th century. This was not a, a system of, of end times that was established beforehand. It came primarily by John Nelson Darby, who was connected with the Plymouth Brethren movement in the late 1800s. In the 1900s, it was being made popular. It was especially made popular by Hal Lindsey in 1970 with his book, The Late Great Planet Earth. And it was especially made popular by the Left Behind books of Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. This was not a system of end time, end time beliefs that was established from the beginning of the New Testament era. That is, it was not there. Maybe some elements that people want to pull from that. They want to take obscure ideas and things that were said by some church fathers to say, well, they believed in premillennialism. 
and, and reading what they said, you could take it any way. There's, that's for another discussion. But anyway, this is not a riddle. It is not to be made confusing. Uh, it is not something that only has to do with the last, the last generation that is on earth at the time of the Lord's return. The amazing thing here, in light of just these few verses, <clears throat> is that the Lord is answering this prayer. Another grace of God that is being presented to us is the fact of Him, him answering prayer. We often wonder, does God answer prayer? Is God answering my prayer? Well, He answers prayers. Of course He does. He answers prayers and He reveals things according to His will and His purpose. Sometimes the answer to his prayer may, uh, to our prayer may be no. Sometimes the answer to our prayer as we are praying on, on behalf of somebody else is that they maybe get better. Or maybe they don't. Maybe we're praying for certain things to happen in our life and all of a sudden that door opens and we are privileged to be able to do whatever it was that we were praying unto the Lord. That's the Lord answering prayer. As you are in your, your time of, of deep anxiety and, and you're, you're downtrodden and you're praying unto the Lord for encouragement and you're searching in the Scriptures, that primarily He is answering you in the Scripture concerning things that have already occurred to encourage you and encourage your heart. God answers prayers. And this is truly a grace of God that He answers prayer. He communicates with His children. He has relationship with His children. And the thing is, is that if you really want to know what God thinks on a matter, or you want to know how that you can be encouraged in your life, then in those specific times in which your your, your countenance has fallen, you know, as the, the psalmist says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. Why is that? Because the psalmist is recounting to himself the things that he knows to be true concerning God, how God has acted on behalf of other people, the promises that God gives to His people within the Scripture that applies to you. And in light of those things, your prayers are being answered. Why is this happening? Because he says this here. What is it that's in store for me? Well, he says this here. What is your will for my life? He says this here. And you are being encouraged to know certain things concerning what God has intended for your life that really go across the board to many of the children of God. But you are, you are receiving that answer from God. You're, you're, you're being encouraged by His very words to your heart, and that is Him answering your prayers. And what a grace of God that that is. That He comforts you that He encourages you. He gives you exactly what you need in the moments that you need it. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm not going any further. Why is it that you don't give up then? You don't give up then because it's the grace of God in you that keeps you going. And it's no longer your strength, but it's God's strength working in you to keep you going, even when you feel like giving up. That's why you don't. Because you know God's going to provide exactly what you need to carry on. Because God cares for you. 
and God is caring for you and feeding your soul with the things of His Word and the Scripture by encouraging you through other brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are helping helping you in your time of need. And that's God answering prayer for you. I need help. I receive encouragement from His Word and I receive encouragement from the people of God to help me. And God does this continually. Always. He is doing this very special thing here for Daniel. But not just for Daniel. But for all the people of God to receive the same encouragement that Daniel is receiving here. Lord, how is it that You are going to take care of this? Your people fell away. They did not regard You. They didn't listen to Your commandments. didn't listen to Your law. Will You forgive? And here's the answer. This is what Gabriel says to him. And he says at the latter part of verse 23, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. It's meant to be understood. So here it is. How is the Lord going to do this? Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city. This, this language here. Seventy weeks. Each week does represent seven years. It's, it's actually saying seventy sevens. A period of seventy sevens. A period of 490 years, if you will, if we count each week representing seven years as it is intended in the, in the Hebrew there. That within this period of time, this is decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now this is some really interesting language here that Gabriel is saying. It's really interesting language when you're trying to go into the Hebrew and to, to see what all these words mean. I was looking at some of my Old Testament commentaries of Kiel and Dillich, uh, these, these scholars of the Old Testament. And where it's saying here to finish the transgression, it, it's meaning to restrain the transgression. To arrest the transgression. To hold it captive. As in a prison, if you will. To bring an end of sin, or make an end of sin, is also, in light of that, to prevent the spread of sin. Now, in light of these things here, we go back to what he's talking about. Your people fell away, they didn't listen to your word. We're here on account of that. We committed great iniquity. How are you going to stop this? And the Lord's saying, I'm going to restrain this transgression. I'm going to prevent it from being spreading. How is that going to work? How, how do you do that? But He goes on. We'll get to that in a second. But He goes on to make atonement for iniquity. To make a covering for iniquity. I'm going to restrain it. I'm going to arrest it. I'm going to prevent it from being a spread anywhere else. And I'm going to make a covering for it. And to bring in everlasting righteousness. 
people in and of themselves have no righteousness. They have no righteousness to speak of, and that's why Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, of which we are so familiar, your righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. You have no righteousness. You have no good works, no perfection that you can appeal to God before. But, concerning what He is going to do here, He says He is going to bring in everlasting righteousness. It's going to happen. It's going to come. He's going to seal up vision and prophecy. This is a very interesting language here. And again, some of these Old Testament prophets are looking at this. And the meaning that they are coming out with, what does it mean to seal up vision and prophecy? It doesn't mean to just close up something so that it can't be read or can't be understood anywhere else. It has an even greater meaning. One writer said, prophecies and prophets are sealed. When by the full realization of all prophecies, prophecy ceases. No prophets anymore appear. They didn't listen to the prophets before. Daniel specifically says that. We didn't listen to the prophets that you sent. So what does the Lord say? I'm going to restrain that transgression of falling away from me, of not listening to me anymore. I'm going to restrain it. I'm going to keep it from being uh, spread. I'm going to make a covering for it. I'm going to bring in a righteousness that is everlasting. And no more prophecies, no more prophets. And to anoint the most holy place. Now there's really no records of, of this being done. Whether from the time of which Israel comes back, even when Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, when Antiochus had desecrated the temple, they cleansed the temple and all that sort of thing, but there's really no record of any anointing that took place of the sanctuary itself. So theologians are... Definitely divided on this. Some take various views. But he's implying here to anoint the most holy, if you notice in your Bible, places in a talent. To anoint the most holy, to anoint the most holy place, and anoint the most holy thing. What is he talking about? But this is something that God is going to do in light of what His people have been doing in order to bring all these things about. All of these things are what is in view concerning this entire prophecy. It's not a prophecy about tribulation. It's not a prophecy about Antichrist. It's not a prophecy having to do with Christ rapturing His people, and then seven years later coming back and, and destroying the Antichrist and false prophets. None of that is in view. What is in view is what God is going to do for His people on account of their sin and how they fall away so often. <clears throat> That's why when we sing that song, talking about our wandering hearts, we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. That's the human heart. But what is God going to do in order to prevent this? And that's what we're reading of. My people will no longer do these things. My people will not fall away. That transgression is done. And it's not going to spread among my 
real, genuine people. I'm going to make an atonement for them. I'm going to make a covering for them. No more are they going to need prophets anymore. It's not going to be necessary. I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness to them. And all of this is culminating, all of this is pointing to exactly what Christ is going to do. This prophecy has to do with Christ and only Christ. It talks about in the sense of what mercy and forgiveness is coming to the people of God. Yes, and justice that is coming. The justice that is coming upon the people themselves is in order to bring an end to something else. Because something new has come about. So here's the prophecy. This is what it has to do with. This is the content of it. This is the focus. This is the scope. Now, the rest of this is unfolding what we just read. It is, it is picking it apart for us that we can gather some more details of what is occurring here. What is the Lord doing? So in verse 25, he says, So you are to know and discern that from an issuing of a decree to restore, restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of great distress. This prophecy is going to begin at the issuing of a decree. So if Daniel is writing, or excuse me, Daniel is praying this, and he has this vision come to him, this answered prayer come to him in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, then obviously Cyrus is done gone. Cyrus made an official decree in 538 for the Jews to go back home. That time's passed. He's done gone. Now we're in the reign of another king, one of his successors. You have Darius, who is being in view here. Perhaps not the son of Ahasuerus, as Darius was not a direct descendant of Cyrus. But perhaps in the lineage of the kings, you could say that he's a successor in that sense. If this is referring to Darius one, Darius the Great. Either way, that particular time is past. There's a new decree coming at a certain time as well in which these things will begin. <clears throat> so when was the decree given that we can look at that has the same kind of a content here of Jerusalem being restored, of order being put back to the people of God, back to the, the nation of God, when was the decree given? Hold your place here in Daniel. Flip back with me to Ezra chapter 7. In Ezra chapter 7, we have an official decree that is being given here. Now, let's jump in verse 6 of Ezra chapter 7. And let's just read this. Follow along in your Bible. 
It says, This Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all that he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the sons of Israel and some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first of the first month he began to go up from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and his and ordinances in Israel. Here. Now this is the copy of the decree which King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, learned in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace. And now I have issued a decree that any of the people of Israel and their priests and Levites in my kingdom who are willing to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For as much as you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem, according to the law of your God which is in your hand, and to bring the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold which you find in the whole province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and of the priests who offered willingly for the house of their God which is in Jerusalem, with this money, therefore, you shall diligently buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offering and their drink offering and offer them on the altar of the house of your God which is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and to your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold you may do according to the will of your God. Also the utensils which are given to you for the service of the house of your God deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. The rest of the needs for the house of your God, for which you may have occasion to provide, provide for it from the royal treasury. I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river, that whatever the Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently, even up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt as needed. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be done with zeal for the house of the God of heaven, so that there will not be wrath against the kingdom of the king and his sons. We also inform you that it is not allowed to impose tax, tribute, or toll on any of the priests, Levites, singers, doorkeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God which is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges that they may judge all the people who are in the province beyond the river, even all, even all those who know the laws of your God. And you may teach anyone who is ignorant of them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed upon him strictly, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as in as this in the king's heart to adorn adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended loving kindness to me before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty princes. Thus I was strengthened according to the hand of the Lord my God upon me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So here's an official decree 
given by King Artaxerxes in the seventh year of his reign, in which he provides everything that is needed for the house of God. Whatever you need, you take. If you need more, take it from the royal treasury. Whatever God requires, you take it. And while you're there, appoint magistrates, appoint judges that they can judge the people. So you have the house of God being once again restored. You have order being restored to Jerusalem itself as an order specifically from King Artaxerxes to do this. This decree, given in the seventh year of his reign, 457 B.C., right in that area, Now, if we start there, and we have this official decree given by King Artaxerxes, going back to Daniel, he says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. You have seven weeks which were mentioned before, and then you have the 62 weeks thereafter. These are consecutive, but why does he split it up that way? Well, it could be uh, just the language of, of what he is presenting there, but it also could be that 49 years from the issuing of that decree by King Artaxerxes, 49 years later, in 408 B.C., the streets and the wall of Jerusalem was completed in that very year, which is seven weeks from the issuing of the decree until that was completed. Could be in reference to that. But either way, even if we grant that 49 years to be the completion specifically of the streets and the wall around Jerusalem that was done by Nehemiah and others, we still have this 62 weeks to contend with in which the Messiah will arrive. If you take the entire period here, of 62 plus 7, obviously we're talking 69 weeks, 483 years. If you start at the date of 457 B.C. and you push forward in history 483 years for the completion of the 69 weeks, you come to 26-27 A.D., which is the time in which our Lord Jesus would have began His ministry at 30 years old. Christ was born between 4 and 6 B.C., so Christ would have been 30 years old, revealing Himself to be the Messiah. 26, 27 AD. So, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 69 weeks. From the time the decree is given until Messiah comes, 483 years. And there He is. Being baptized by John. Revealing Himself to be the Son of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jerusalem is built by this time. Jerusalem has order to it. But he says this, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing or no one. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. After the fulfillment of the 69 weeks, 69 weeks the Messiah appears. It's saying after this period he's going to be cut off, he's going to have no one, and then 
Somebody else that he just brings into the equation, the prince of the people, is going to come and he's going to bring desolations. So you have him revealing that the Messiah shows up, the Messiah is then killed, and now you have somebody else that's coming about that's going to destroy the city again. Now, in light of that, now he reveals even more of these very things in verse 27. These things are meant to be understood, right? Not to be confusing, he's giving Daniel a time period here. You want to know how we're going to do this? How I'm going to do this? How I'm going to bring in everlasting righteousness? How I'm going to make an end of sin? How I'm going to seal up the vision and prophecy? How it is that I'm going to restrain this transgression of which you are praying to me about? How I'm going to make a covering for it? The Messiah is going to come and He's going to be cut off. He's going to die. And there's a purpose in Him dying. And then there's a judgment that's going to come thereafter that's going to bring an end of this whole system in which His people can fall away. So then we read of this, this covenant. This covenant that is described for us in verse 27. This is like this is this is like a commentary. Verse twenty seven is on verse twenty six. It's after the sixty nine weeks. Then the Messiah will be cut off. And by the way, that is a very interesting thing as well, the timeline. Because when they come to John the Baptist, the religious leaders, what are they asking him? Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Why were they asking him those things unless they knew from Daniel's prophecy they were anticipating the coming of the Messiah about that time? According to Daniel's timeline, they would be looking for him. So why would they not go to John the Baptist and say, Are you him? You know he's supposed to be here. Obviously John was not him. He was one who came to testify about the light. He came in the spirit and, and power of Elijah. But after the 69 weeks, the Messiah is cut off. And he's cut off in the midst of this 70th week that is now being described for us. This 70th week, which the premillennial camp says is the seven-year tribulation, is still attached to these others. They want to remove this last week and fling it into the future somewhere. To say it hasn't happened yet. But everything that is happening thus far is happening consecutively. Week 1 to week 69 happen consecutively. Why in the world would the 70th week not help to join up with the others and be the complete amount of time of 490 years? Here's what he says. And He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, seven years. But in the middle of the week, He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. When the Messiah is cut off, as He previously said in verse 26, He's going to be cut off in the middle of this last week. And when He is cut off, the other thing that's going to happen is by His death, He is going to put a stop to sacrifice and a stop to the grain offering. Three and a half years into the ministry of Christ, the night before He died, He passes around the cup 
This is the cup of the new covenant which is shed for many. This is what he says. And then the next day he gave his life as a ransom for many. And when he gave his life as a ransom for many, and he cried out at the very last, it's finished. And he bowed his head and he died. What happened at the temple in Jerusalem? Over at the temple where they're offering the evening sacrifice, at the moment that Christ dies, they're offering the evening sacrifice in the temple, and the veil that is six inches thick is torn from the very top to all the way to the bottom. And it lays open the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. What was that signifying? It was signifying that the things that were previous, the things that were under the old covenant in the ceremonial law, were not good enough in order to make full atonement or to stop the transgression that Daniel is praying for or to make a covering for it or to prevent it from spreading. Something had to happen in order to make these things actually happen. To bring in this everlasting righteousness. And what it was, was the death of the Lamb of God. It couldn't happen beforehand. At least not within the outward under the, the outward practice of the covenant, the Old Testament covenant. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1, for the law since it has only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had, would no longer have had consciousness or yeah, consciousness of sin? So even the writer of Hebrews is saying, they had to continually do these sacrifices every year because there was always a remembrance of sin. Because full atonement had not been made for them yet. And under the regulations of the Old Covenant, it was more outward worship. We were having to do these specific acts that the Lord has said. If you're not offering them with a sincere heart, then it's nothing. The worshiper was to act in faith in the Lord in which he was doing these things. So a majority of the people within Israel could just go through the motions, not having any heart conversions whatsoever. And at times when, when nations would come in and they would bring in their gods and all of that, many of the people would always, always fall into pagan idolatry and fall away from the Lord. But the Lord's saying at times coming, this is no longer going to happen. And it's going to be inaugurated when the Messiah gives His life, when He enters through the veil, not made with hands, having offered Himself unto the Father by the blood which is more precious than that of bulls and goats, but the precious blood of the only Son of God. Because Christ offered Himself Everything within the law, you have to understand, all the ceremonial aspects of the law, the priest, the sacrifice, the, the, the temple, everything was pointing directly to Christ. Christ will be the high priest. Christ will be the only atoning sacrifice. Bulls and goats can't atone for sin. It was signifying something else. So that when the fulfillment came, there were no longer any need for the things that foreshadowed it. So Christ, by His once offering of Himself, put an end to the sacrificial system. 
He put an end to the sacrifice. He put an end to the grain offering. There is no indication whatsoever within this verse that the one who was making a covenant is some antichrist figure. At all. There are two that are being mentioned here in this text. Are there not? Messiah the Prince and the Prince of the People. Right? The Prince of the People doesn't even come back into the equation until the latter part of verse 27. Not the first part. The He who makes a firm covenant is the Messiah who inaugurates the new covenant. It's interesting that Daniel is praying in light of Jeremiah's words and the angel is answering him in light of that prayer. But it's also Jeremiah who prophesies in Jeremiah chapter 31. He prophesies of the new covenant. Jeremiah does. Verse 27 of chapter 31 Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die in his own iniquity, each man who eats the sour the, excuse me, the sour grapes with his teeth will sit, will be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. That's the promise of the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied of. This is the same covenant that Daniel is talking about here about the He who is in reference to Christ, the Messiah, who is going to inaugurate that covenant, who is going to make that covenant. It is Christ who brings it in. And He brought it in the night before He died. This is the cup of the new covenant which is shed for many. Christ is the one who is in reference here, who died three and a half years into His ministry. Three and a half being obviously half of seven. We're talking about a seven-year period, three and a half years in, he dies, makes atonement. Now after that, after he puts a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering, then the prince of the people comes back into play. And on, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This is once again referencing the one that was spoken of in verse 26, the prince of the people. Who is the prince of the people? Well, the one who sacked Jerusalem and ended up getting in and destroying the city was the son of the emperor, Titus. Titus, the son of Vespasian, who was the emperor at that time. He, being the prince of the people, was the one who destroyed Jerusalem. And destroying Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple of God, which in and of itself brought an end to the sacrificial system, at least in its outward practices. For since that time, the temple has never been rebuilt. 
the sacrifices never being inaugurated again or reinstituted again because the Lord made the sacrifice once for all time. And because these things were no longer needed, the temple, the priests, the sacrifices, all that was an abomination unto the Lord because the real thing had come. They're still practicing it over here. So the Lord brings judgment upon them and puts all of it to an end. Everything that we're reading here has already happened in history. And on account of Christ and faith in Christ and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we're granted faith in Christ. And what's the promises that we receive? We will never fall away. We bring our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. We, we seek to, to restrain ourselves when it comes to sin. For Christ has made a covering for us. Christ has made atonement for us. And we have the righteousness of Christ that is now imputed to us through faith so that when the Father looks at us, He sees everlasting righteousness. He sees the righteousness of His Son that has fulfilled His law. Filled it, fulfilled it to, to its, its perfection. And after His Son comes, there's no more need for any others. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that in sundry times and in diverse manners God spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. The final revelation, the final word of God, as we've been talking about in John, is Christ. After that, after He commissioned the apostles to spread the gospel and all of that, no more need for prophets, no more need for apostles, Everything has been written down for us. We have the complete Word of God from Genesis to Revelation and there is no need for new revelation. So what did He do with the coming of Christ? He sealed up prophecy and vision. He anointed, <clears throat> anointed the most holy place. Could that be in reference to Christ? As Christ is the most holy of all. When He was baptized by John the the Spirit of God came down as a dove and lighted upon His shoulder, anointing Him? Could it have been that Christ, being God in the flesh, entered into the temple itself? Could that be what is in reference there? Possibly. Could it be that the most holy place that is anointed is now the collected people of God, which is the foundation, the church, the temple of God, the house of God in which the Holy Spirit dwells? Very possible. All of these things, regardless perhaps of which one it is, all this came about in Christ. How does God deal with sin? How did God deal with the fact that His people constantly falling away? He sent Christ. And through Christ, none will ever perish. That's the promise of God. That all who believe in Him will never perish. Jesus Himself says, I know my sheep and they follow Me. And none can pluck them from My hand. That is a promise of God for all the people of God. You will never perish. You will never fall away. You will never be lost. None can ever pluck you out of the Father's hand. And so on account of what Christ has accomplished, this is God's answer to Daniel. A time is coming, Daniel, in which the Messiah will come and He will accomplish His work and none will ever fall away again and none will ever perish again. For they will have imputed to them the righteousness of the Most Holy 
and their sins will be covered and I will forgive their iniquities. And He can do that because Christ paid the full payment of sin upon the cross and satisfied the justice of God. This is how God is dealing with the sin of His people. This is why it is so crucial for us to, to look at these passages of Scripture in light of what has previously been said to us of Daniel's prayer, which flows right into this magnificent explanation of the work of our Lord Jesus in bringing all of these things about. Because Christ did. Christ and the Holy Spirit within us restrains this particular transgression and only He is the one who was ever worthy to make, it, make atonement for iniquity. Christ did all of it. He did it for them in that time, the people of God that were of the true Israel, out of ethnic Israel. And He does it for all the people now who are privileged to be grafted into Israel. Gentiles who are called by His name, who receive the same, the same atonement made for them that was made for even ethnic Israel. Christ is them. And these are the promises that we receive on account of that. We'll never be lost. Never fall away. And if you can, then you never had it to begin with. That's why John says in 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us because they were not really of us. If they were really of us, they would have remained. What a promise of God. That though these people were called by His name, they fell away and perished. But not in Christ. Not for any who are truly in Christ. You will never that is the promise of God. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you so much for this passage here. What an encouragement it is to our hearts. We often wonder, how is it that we can be saved? Because we battle with ourselves. We battle with sin. But we don't rest in our own works. Because... What brings us into Your favor is the righteousness of Your Son. And on account of what He did, we are adopted into the family of God. Never to be unadopted. Never to be forsaken. You will continually bring us along until the day You call us home and then perfect us. Perfect us in Christ. Thank You so much the atonement that was made on our behalf that in Christ our sins our sins are forgiven they're covered so that your word says though your sins be as scarlet yet they should be white as snow thank you so much that in Christ we have a clean slate that in Christ we have the privilege of being sons and daughters that in Christ we have an everlasting righteousness that is imputed to us because of Him. So, Father, be glorified in us and may these wonderful truths be a, a joy to our hearts and a great encouragement. 
how we ought to praise you even more. Let your praises be on our lips all time. Thank you so much, Bob. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention.